final day of the trial of the century has arrived, and there is only one thing left to do for the attorneys involved in the case, and that is for Bill Kunkel to address the jury with his final remarks. Now, we feel extremely fortunate as we were able to coax Bill Kunkel to read his closing argument made on that fateful day to you, our cherished listeners. It is lengthy, and it is because we were able to get Mata Sr. and Bill Kunkel to recite their statements to the jury that we summarized much of the testimony at trial. In terms of weighing the impact on you, the listeners, Darren and I both felt that hearing these words spoken by these two men some 40 years after the fact, now as old men, long past their primes, is incredibly powerful. Again, I want you to try and transport yourselves in your mind to the PAC courtroom at 26 in California on March 12th of 1980. This is part of the magic of podcasting. It's why we all love it. The lack of visuals allows your mind to enter a different time and space. So sit back as we transport you to 43 years ago to hear the final words of the man who brought the creep to justice. Judge Garippo, gentlemen, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'll be the last one to speak to you before you get your instructions on the law from the judge and then review or retire to the jury room to deliberate this case. I'll make you only two promises about my remarks. The first is I won't speak as long as Mr. Sullivan, perhaps not as well either. Hopefully I won't be as loud as Mr. Amirati. Mr. Amirati asked you not to consider sympathy. You should not consider sympathy. Don't consider sympathy for this defendant either. Psychiatrists talked about having computers instead of jurors. They talked about being dispassionate. They left out something called common sense. A lot of us talked about it in the beginning of this trial in the jury selection. You can't replace common sense of people with computers. You don't do psychiatric diagnosis by computers. We can't take a Minnesota monophasic personality inventory and get a numerical sequence and say that a man who has killed 33 people isn't responsible for his actions. People aren't that simple. Justice isn't that easy. Mr. Amirati told you that John Gacy had an uncontrollable side, that he was encaged in his own flesh. So are we all, ladies and gentlemen. Each of us has good, each of us has evil. And that which separates a social person and a human being with respect for life, with respect for the rights and properties of others from the animal is the ability to separate those parts yourselves. John Gacy separated these parts probably better than anyone I've ever heard of. The defense asked you to excuse John Gacy for the murder of 33 citizens of this state because he is so normal. A normal, everyday guy, and gee, why we admit he killed 33 people, therefore he has got to be crazy. So they put on witnesses. 
many witnesses to tell you what a great guy he is, to tell you how normal he is, just as we were putting on witnesses to tell you that when they observed this man at important times, important dates, days of some of the crimes, the day even before some of the crimes, the day after some of the crimes, these dates that I asked Mike Rossi about and other people about, these were specific dates. We wanted to show what John was doing on those days. How did he appear to people? They told you he was normal. They told you he was the same as he always was. There have been villains throughout history, dictators of totalitarian countries and mass murderers, all kinds of evil villainies put on this earth. I think they probably all formed genuine relationships with their wives. During the course of the investigation of this case, many of us that have been associated with it have felt, have experienced very strong emotions. There has been a necessity through the presentation of the witnesses in this case for you to experience some of that emotion yourselves. As human beings, you will, I know you will, do the best you can to leave that emotion, leave that sympathy and pity out of your consideration of the issues in this case. But don't for a minute feel that there is something wrong with you or you are not doing your job as a juror because you have felt these emotions, because we have all felt them. The time it came home to me in this case it was very early on in the first week of the excavation on Summerdale. You've already seen this photograph, People's Exhibit 174 for identification. It's a photograph of grave number eight. Above the numeral is the dirt and there is a blue tennis shoe. On a plastic body bag to the left of the grave on the dirt is the other blue tennis shoe with a leg bone sticking out of that tennis shoe. I was at the house that day, and I saw it when that picture was taken. The thought that goes to my mind at the time was of tying my daughter's shoes that morning before I left. And I thought, how in God's name did this man with this tennis shoe, with those legs, was that boy in that hole his basement, tie the children's tennis shoes. Psychoanalysts can't give you an answer to that question. Medical psychiatrists can't give you an answer to that question. Dr. Reifman told you that John Gacy has no remorse because John Gacy has no remorse. If you think that you can excuse this man from these crimes because he was normal, then every hitman Every dictator, every organized criminal, every person that has learned to kill and learned to accept killing ought to be excused with him because they are no different. They are no different. John Gacy learned to kill and he kept on killing and he knew he was killing. 
I don't doubt that he was able to show genuine love and care for both of his wives, for his original natural children, or for his stepdaughters. All the doctors explain to you that a sociopath or a psychopath has certain areas of certain relationships where his affect is shallow, where he doesn't form a true loving relationship, where he doesn't really let himself be relied on by other people, and that the true sense of the word doesn't really form a lot of true friendships, but he can still, within his own sphere, within those people that are important to his personality, his ego makeup, the way he looks at life, he can form those general relationships. And he did that. He did. And that doesn't mean he can't tell you and know that he is killing and know that what he is doing is wrong. And those are the issues that you are here to decide. You're not here to decide why John Gacy killed. You are not here to analyze John Gacy or write a book on psychotherapy or plan a treatment plan for John Gacy. You are only here to decide the question of whether or not he was legally responsible for his actions at the times of these crimes and nothing else. If you want to restructure our society based on psychoanalytical theories of Dr. Morrison, Dr. Broker, and Dr. Friedman, and Dr. Rappaport, you know, the psychoanalysts, number one, very seldom do they cure anyone. Number two, their statistical percentage of predicting human behavior is less than a random guess. And yet they come here on this witness stand and based on their own high-blown theories, ask you to excuse this man for murder. What would they have us do if we are to run our society the way they ask you to? Are we to seek out and find all the three to five-year-olds that hide silk panties under the front porch and incarcerate them somewhere? Because if we don't, certainly they're going to become murderers. Should we send vans through the streets and neighborhoods, check out all the families that have an alcoholic father, and take those children away somewhere to some special institution? Because most certainly they're going to become murderers. And if the Department of Children and Family Services in Illinois and the juvenile court finds abused and battered children, are we to separate them out from society and say, it is obvious. The psychoanalysis tells us this person can never be a contributing normal human being. They're going to become a murderer. Can we do that in our society? Is that what the Bill of Rights that Mr. Amorati was talking about is all about? This country, this system, is built on free will. Our system is built on responsibility for your actions. Each of us, as a citizen of this country, has the opportunity 
the opportunity and the responsibility to perform as a member of society and any one of us who chooses to violate the law consciously and knowingly, we cannot be excused. What would you have this system do with persons who suffered social or economic deprivation as children growing up? Is that any different than someone who is being abused by a parent or not getting the love a parent should give them? Why don't we excuse them from crimes? Do we excuse everyone that came from a poor neighborhood when they steal that orange? And I think it was Dr. Broker was talking about because they had a compulsion that he called hunger. What if this were a case of 33 bank robberies? The same psychoanalytic theories, the same diagnosis by the defense doctors, but they're not murders, they're bank robberies. So do you think it still fits? Of course not. It's absurd. You reject it instantly. You see, that's the key to this whole sham of a defense. And that is that there is no evidence to support insanity in this defendant at the time of the crimes, other than the crimes themselves. Dr. Morrison and Dr. Rappaport can't admit to themselves, can't accept the fact that were it not for some mental disease, this man would have killed 33 times. So they blow up this theory to explain it to satisfy their own ego and their own idea of what life should be like. We have got to ask you to take that hard step and look at reality. We have got to ask you to look at the good and bad that is in yourselves and the good and bad that is in everyone that you know and realize that not only can people perform acts like this without needing some mental illness explanation or impetus to do it, but in fact, they do. And he did it. I don't want to spend too much time talking about the experts for either side because we have heard millions of words from all of them. And I don't know how many of them I understand and I don't know how many you understand. Well, let me briefly hit on some of the things that they said. Let's look at the defense experts as a group. They are all psychoanalysts. They all believe in psychodynamic theories. They all side with Dr. Rappaport when Dr. Rappaport has the unmitigated gall to sit on that witness stand and in response to my questions say all human behavior can be explained by my theories. I can explain everything. Wouldn't that be a sad state of affairs for all of us? All of them base their conclusions on inferences, on inferences, on theories and not facts. I hope you remember me asking each one of them from time to time, what are the facts about the killing on January 3rd, 1973, that support your psychoanalytic theory? No response, no response. The theory supports itself. 
You have to look at all my conclusions. You have to look at all the diagnoses. Doctor, what are the facts? No response. Helen Morrison doesn't even know what the facts of the killings are. She doesn't care. The bottom line problem with psychoanalytic or psychodynamic theories as it relates to the criminal justice system goes right to the core of all of their theories. And that is predetermination. When you turn that around, what it really means is that no one is responsible for their actions. That is really what they're saying to you. We can't run society that way. The laws don't say that. Common sense doesn't say that. We must be responsible for our actions. We talk about some of them individually. Dr. Elysio. First, let me say that in no way am I blaming Dr. Elysio or inferring anything improper on his part in terms of the way that he chose to base his testimony solely on psychological testing, not knowing any of the facts of the case. Now, he testified based on what had been given to him on one day of testing, January 13, 1980, after the court has ordered that the jury for this trial will be selected in Rockford, Illinois. Suddenly, out of the blue, never having appeared before on any discovery materials or any reports tendered or anything else, we suddenly get a report from a Rockford psychologist. But based on his one day of psychological testing, he tells you that he is able to look back in history in his crystal ball and tell you that John Gacy was a paranoid schizophrenic continually for at least an eight-year period from a time from 1972 through 1980. I suggest to you that that opinion is patently ridiculous. This is a man that carried out a highly structured life, ran businesses, worked in the political field, ran parades, clowns, organizations, did all these things. A person suffering from paranoia, schizophrenia, does not conduct his daily life in that fashion. And that is putting it in very simple terms. You heard some of the doctors define the mental state of these kinds of individuals. Now, it certainly isn't even close to what is known about this defendant. And interestingly enough, most of his tests show the defendant was normal, of high intelligence. He told you there is a big significant difference between the performance score and the verbal score on the Wexler intelligence scale. Well, Dr. Wexler, who designed the test, and has been improving it and perfecting it over the years, 
wrote in the most recent textbook on that test that that deviation means absolutely nothing. Dr. Rogers told you exactly that, and he showed you that in the book. So that's the first indication. Draw a person test, one drawing. Dr. Rogers and others told you that that is an insufficient amount of data, particularly with only one drawing having been done, an inappropriate kind of test to reach the kind of diagnosis that the doctor reached. The Rorschach test, subjective. Again, I believe by a significant part of the field, particularly with regard to forensics, that this is an invalid test in terms of trying to reach any real diagnosis, real diagnosis, real conclusions about people's behavior. Sure, they have been around for 60 years. They've been used. The SADS test is new. It has only been around for 10 or 12 years. But it's taking over the field. And in 10 years, 10% of the psychiatrists and psychologists in the country are now using it because it is reliable. It is statistically provable. It is not inferences. It is not guessing. It is uniform and it works. Again, Dr. Elysio has no basis as to the facts. He wasn't concerned about the facts. He wasn't even told the facts. Most important, even if you would accept Elysio's sweeping diagnosis that this defendant as a paranoid schizophrenic for eight years, could he tell you one word from that witness stand as to any causal relationship? Because this supposed disease and this defendant's ability or inability to control his conduct or appreciate the criminality of his conduct at the time of the crime, none, none, no causality. No connections. Here is a man who couldn't control his homosexual acting out. That literally was in control of his aggressive or violent behavior. Now that is what the defense psychologist told you. Now, He used all those tests to find all kinds of signs and diagnoses out of numbers. But when it came down to what does it relate to his conduct, that is what he said in his letter. I read it. You heard it. He said that's what he said. Dr. Rappaport, you get a day and a half lecture on Psychology 101. But what did he say about causality? What did Dr. Rappaport ever say about the facts of these killings that led him to support his theory? No answers. Nothing. Nothing but theory. He agrees. He is a sociopath. He agrees that that explains signing those reports. 
He agrees. His brain is absolutely, perfectly normal. He agrees there is no neurological problem. He doesn't even find him to be a psychotic. He calls him a borderline. Here is what he told you, he said in his report. Quote, he understood intellectually that squeezing the neck can cause suffocation and death. He knew the logical progression of events and that the consequences of the act would be death. Close quote. Now, if that is true, and I most certainly believe it is true, then how can he sit there on that witness stand and testify when that is in his report that this man couldn't appreciate or couldn't control his conduct? Mr. Amarati made an objection. The court said he may argue. He also said he could, as a sociopath, after the intense expression of hostility, justify his behavior to himself as a warranted act. It does conform to his private code of morality, even though he recognized that his behavior would not be considered socially acceptable As a psychopath, he feels no guilt, no remorse. Ladies and gentlemen, in a free society, we can tolerate a person who has their own private code of morality as long as they hurt no one but themselves. But when they hurt others, as this man has, we cannot accept his private code of morality. We cannot excuse him. Dr. Friedman. Dr. Friedman has a lot of degrees and honors, a lot of testimonial dinners that I'm sure he goes to to be praised and given awards. He used terms that are non-existent in the DSM-3. Now, I am not going to talk to you in detail about this diagnosis that is in DSM-3. I know you have heard more of that than you want to hear anyway. But if psychiatrists themselves cannot agree on what the terms are, on what the language means, then how can they communicate with each other, how can they possibly communicate with us? This is the Bible on the criteria that are agreed on by the American Psychiatric Association. And that book appears in every hospital, in every office, in every research lab, in every teaching institution in this nation. If we cannot rely on that, if we can't get that witness on the witness stand to at least give us an equivalent term, but at least explain to us what they are talking about, how can we have sense of it? 
how can we effectively cross-examine? How can we find out what they are basing their opinion on? The bottom line is that Dr. Friedman did not give you an opinion. All he testified to was another psychoanalytical theory. He gave no opinion as to the defendant's ability to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or his ability to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. This opinion is worthless without that. You can take nothing from it, and I suggest that you reject it. Keep in mind that this was a man that certainly felt competent and comfortable with giving an opinion in this Simon Peter Nelson case. Dr. Broker, Dr. Broker is still using the same theories the same labels that he used in Germany. He has never before testified in the United States court. He doesn't know the Illinois definition of the insanity defense. Now he is a highly respected man in the field of psychiatry, particularly back in Germany. I have no doubt of that. I have no doubt as to his intellectual honesty. But the man doesn't know what he is here to testify about. He doesn't even know what the Illinois standard is. And all he is giving you is another series of psychoanalytical theories. He gives you no opinion. He tells you nothing that can assist you in reaching a verdict in this case. Helen Morrison. Dr. Morrison used the term in talking about Friedman's diagnostic mush. Now, you talk about stringing together paragraphs and sentences and long words. I think she is the champ. She is a self-professed expert on mass murder whose experience consists of 350 civil commitment situations in Wisconsin. You get the diagnosis while you wait, and then right into the mental hospital. That's Helen Morrison's forensic experience. Dr. Morrison, what are the facts of the killings that you are basing these theories and opinions on? No answer. No answer. And then she tells you that John Gacy would kill with a policeman at his shoulder. If that were true, then why didn't Gacy kill Peace right in the middle of the Nissen Pharmacy? If that were true, why didn't he run over Butkovich on the street with his car when he saw him on the street? He didn't do those things. He took them through force or through guile to his home, where he was alone with them, where no one was there to see, where no one would intrude or interrupt. And he killed them in that private and hellish place. And then he proceeded to cover up the evidence. And that is what he did 33 times. He never killed anyone in public. 
He never went into a rage at State and Madison and started thrashing about with a knife, slashing down passersby. He didn't go up in some tall building or tower with a bunch of rifles and a machine gun and start gunning down people on the street. He didn't walk up to a Texas police station in front of live TV cameras and shoot somebody in the stomach. He committed 33 deliberate murders in the privacy of his own home and disposed of and hid his evidence. Now, how convenient that he would only have these compulsions in the secrecy of his home at three o'clock in the morning rather than at the Golden Bear restaurant on Harlem or at the Moose Lodge or at a clown presentation. Contrast this testimony of those doctors that the people of Illinois offered in this trial. Mr. Amirati tells you that there is apparently some virtue in a privately retained expert. He tried to infer to you that there is some kind of devious, and frankly, I consider it insulting, as regards the devious motives for them to doctor their diagnosis for God knows what reason. Well, let me ask you something. Consider something about privately retained psychiatrists who practice in the legal field. If a psychiatrist's only business comes from defense lawyers, if that is where his referrals come from, how many referrals do you think he is going to get back from that lawyer or that lawyer's firm if he keeps finding people sane at the time of the crime? We gave you forensic specialists, people who deal with criminals, not people who have a practice up in Highland Park with a Palm Springs tan and sit around working on a neurosis of people that have a pet with neuroses. We are talking about people that deal with murderers every day. We're talking about people that know a con when they see one. Leonard Heston and his staff in Iowa. We didn't pick Leonard Heston out of the air. Leonard Heston examined him in Iowa eight years ago. I didn't know who Leonard Heston was until I saw the Iowa report or Dr. Amick, his resident, Dr. Guerin, Eugene Guerin, the psychologist. They weren't picked out of some bag of magic tricks. They weren't referred to because they were psychoanalysts who didn't believe anybody's responsible for anything. They were referred to by me because they provide something as rare in criminal or forensic psychiatric work. It is so fortunate that it happened. And that is a prior exam. How many times do you think you get in a criminal who committed the same crime on the streets of this city, on, in your city, Sure, if he's been locked up in a mental institution for 35 years in six different states and had operations and shock treatment and everything else, well, then that's fine. You have that kind of record. 
and it is support for the defense. But how often do you think you have a situation where you have a confident, thorough examination by professionals before the crime being judged happened? Heston isn't looking at the same crystal ball to look back or forward. He was there in 1968 in Iowa. He had him 17 days in the hospital under ideal conditions. Had nurses' notes available to him. Had staff people reporting to him. Did electroencephalographic studies. Did skull x-rays. Did chemical and biological tests. Neurological tests. He had his medical history. He had the reports and statements which they suggest to you. The man is an expert in the field of sociopathy and schizophrenia. That is the field he publishes in. That is what he studied. That is what he knows about. And he is a professor at one of the largest universities, the University of Minnesota, training psychiatrists. The man is a plain speaking expert in psychopathy and schizophrenia. What did he tell you? Mr. Amirati says he ignored the symptoms or the history. He didn't do that. He experienced why the symptoms were or were not important to him. Again, counsel tries to twist the words that Dr. Gorin gave you. That sentence with a comma in it, where he goes on to explain that he doesn't find any paranoid ideas, He doesn't find the paranoid elements in his personality at that time. He said there were answers on some tests, and what he is inferring is that some idiot could have interpreted it as being paranoid. But I certainly don't, meaning Dr. Guerin. And there is no evidence to support it. That's what he said, if you read the whole sentence. And you remember what we went through all of that. It's an oversimplification to believe that sociopaths can never form emotional relationships. It's an oversimplification to think that you can take the DSM-3 or anybody else's diagnostic manual and read down all the possible traits and think that any individual is going to fit every one of them and not some others. People aren't that simple. If it was that simple, we wouldn't have to bring psychiatrists in here. We would just bring in this book and make a bunch of check marks and let you take the book back with you to the jury room. It isn't that simple. Now, the greatest insult of all, talk about projection and blaming other people for your problems, the defense would have you believe And I am quoting as best I can, that if Leonard Heston had done his job in 1968, then all these people would be alive today. Now, at best, that's unprofessional. At best, it is absolutely unwarranted. Dr. Heston made a thorough examination, and he found this defendant to be just what he is today an antisocial personality, a psychopath, a person who commits crime, a person who commits crimes without remorse, 
a person who uses his own guile in his own words to use other people to his own ends. And that's what he was then, and that's what he is now. And Heston knows just as well as you do that in Iowa in 1968, how he was going to commit someone who was a sociopath to a mental hospital. How was he going to do that? What Heston did was to write a letter to the judge. You heard him quote part of it in his final report. And he said, this guy is not going to improve with either social or psychiatric treatment. He's a sociopath. He is not going to be rehabilitated. What you had better do is you better lock him up and you better keep him there. Heston did his job. He said back then what would happen. And it did. But they let him out. They let him out in 18 months on a 10-year sentence. And Dr. Hartman, Katzel says he is evasive. I don't know. I know he had some problems answering some of Katzel's questions. I knew I couldn't understand some of the questions. I don't know how he could. I know there were two ways that a witness can have a problem answering a question, and that is if he doesn't know the answer, and the other is if he can't understand the question. To me, Dr. Hartman is again a plain-speaking, straightforward criminal justice system professional. Bear in mind that the examination done by this psychiatric institute by Dr. Reifman and Dr. Hartman were done at the defense request. They were ordered by the court. None of these people get any $9,000 or $25,000 for conducting an examination. They draw a salary. Reifman has been there for 38 years. 38 years evaluating criminals. That is forensic experience. Hartman gave him an extensive battery of tests. You heard me go through all of the tests that he gave. Some of them were the same tests. Some of them were ones that were Elysio gave, but many more. Years of experience, thousands of examinations as a court expert. And let me tell you something. Dr. Hartman and Dr. Reifman know a lying con man when they see one because they have seen thousands of them. Reifman, an independent expert appointed by the court at the defendant's request. Reifman has no more reason or no more care to be partial in any evaluation than any such expert in this country. I don't know what the detailed statistics of the Psychiatrist Institute are, but if they aren't 75 to 25 for the defense, it would certainly surprise me. These guys are doing these evaluations every day. That is their job. That is their interest. That is their field of study. They use a common sense medical psychiatric approach. They dealt with facts. They deal with questions signs and symptoms that are of importance to making a diagnosis. 
They are not trying to explain everything in the world through psychoanalytical theory. Bear in mind also that Hartman's psychological testing, Hartman's clinical interview, was the first after the defendant's arrest on December 21st of 1978. Even on Hartman's exam, if you remember, Gacy remembered back to some of the same tests having been given to him in Iowa. That is that sketchy memory again. And bang, 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 one after another. For the next year, psychiatrists, psychologists are examining John Gacy. Don't you think there is some importance in having the results of the test before he got called to practice? This is a guy with 135 IQ. This is a lying, malingering con man. And he has been all of his life. He doesn't have to have a degree in psychology to work over those tests. Rogers told you that. Hartman told you that. Dr. Guerin, complete independent, He is no part of the Isaac Ray Center. He is very rarely consulted by the Isaac Ray Center. I didn't go through some list of psychologists and order up a Dr. Guerin, like they ordered up a Dr. Elysio from Rockford. He was consulted by the doctors. The man is one of the top known psychologists in the country. And what did he tell you? No neurological problems. Now the defense says, oh, that's not important because we admitted there were none. Well, then why would they keep telling you about getting hit in the head with a swing? Why do they keep telling you about blackouts? Why do they keep telling you about supposed elliptical seizures? and fits and EEG readings in 1963, because that's what all those things relate to. They relate to the physical brain damage, organic problems or epileptic type seizures. There aren't any of those things present in the defendant, whether they were there before 1963 or not, is a matter of speculation. There may be one electroencephalogram that an MD named Kavanaugh read in 1963 that he thought was unusual. But that's it. That's it. There's nothing after 1963. Normal CAT scan. Normal skull x-rays in 1968. Normal EEG in 1968. Three or four EEGs in 1979. Normal CAT scan in 1979. Normal neurological examination in 1979. And most important of all, normal neuropsychological testing by Dr. Guerin in 1979. All those things are nothing but a smokescreen. They are a sham. They are a red herring. They're meaningless because no one in this courtroom ever testified that this defendant ever had any brain abnormality 
any epileptic kind of process or seizures or anything going on. All that is meaningless and will not assist you in reaching a verdict because it isn't there. By the way, even if it was, can you picture the defendant in an epileptic seizure rising around on the floor, trying to tie three knots the correct way on the rope? Can you picture that? One further thing. Consul pointed out about Dr. Guerin, he said the Rorschach test. He did the Rorschach test right. What did he find in the Rorschach test? The Rorschach test is a projective test the defense is talking about. The Rorschach test isn't part of this neuropsychological workup. It's something different. And this guy is one of the best in the country. And what did he find? After he was cross-examined, we put him on for the purpose of talking about his neuropsychological workup for that limited purpose, the way Elysio might have been put on to simply tell what his test results were. We did not ask him on direct for an ultimate opinion just based on a Rorschach test. But Kotzel on cross went into the Rorschach test and asked him about it. Well, didn't he do it with the two-phase thing? And didn't he analyze it this way? And didn't he say this? And didn't he say that? Well, so I asked him. What were your findings? What was your conclusion based on that Rorschach test? No mental disease. You can't have a failure to appreciate or a lack of control caused by a mental disease if you don't have a mental disease. Dr. Rogers, Isaac Ray Center, an institution created for the purpose of evaluating and treating criminals who suffer from mental illness. Funded by the National Institutes of Health, Dr. Rogers is to me a state-of-the-art psychologist. He is a brilliant young guy. He has had special training in how to give the SADS test, how to relate that to the research diagnostic criteria. He is a statistical expert. He absolutely discredits the defense psychological tests and their conclusions, as does Dr. Hartman. And Hartman used some of the same tests, and Gorin gave the Rorschach test. But the keystones as to whether or not a psychological test or a psychiatric theory means anything is the follow-up study. Without a follow-up study, all you are doing is guessing. There are no statistics. There is no predictability. There is no reliability. The SADS test is designed to be constantly, constantly self-evaluating statistically. You have heard what these statistics are. It is verifiable. Different people giving it to the same people get the same results. Over the course of time, the results are true and accurate. Twice the accuracy. 
double the accuracy of the best standard psychiatric evaluation. That is what Rogers had to tell you about the SADS test. The defense doesn't like the SADS test, though. Rogers was the only expert to testify on that witness stand, willing to back up his statements with data, with statistics, with follow-up studies, the only one. Did you hear one word from that witness stand about what the reliability of the Rorschach test taken alone is for diagnosis? What the reliability of the MMPI is for predicting schizophrenia? There was absolutely no evidence offered to counter Dr. Rogers' testimony. None. Dr. Kavanaugh, president of the Illinois Psychiatric Association, another forensic professional evaluating criminals. That is what he does. He used the team approach that Isaac Ray always uses. They don't work as individuals. They use a team approach, a balanced approach. They delve on several different subspecialties. They went to the neuropsychologist. They used the SADS test in addition to all the other routine psychological tests that had already been given to him time and time again. He gave you a most comprehensive and scholarly evaluation. Now this whole thing about Dr. Fawcett again, a top man in his field, chairman of the Department of Press St. Luke's, the defense tells you that they go to Dr. Fawcett because they know they can get an impartial, scholarly, correct diagnosis from Dr. Fawcett. You get it, just like that. They suggest to you that for some mystical reason involving contributions at Press St. Luke's, which by the way, the evidence doesn't support, He pointed out to you, number one, that Press St. Luke's does not rely on any great deal to funds as certain other institutions do, and they do not. They are a private institution. Their hospitals make money, and we don't know how much money hospitals make every day, and they do. He was told by his superiors that if he wanted to get involved in this case, as he has been with regards to other criminal cases on his own, as an individual practitioner, he could do that if he wanted to. He was told to use his best judgment. He told the gentleman for the defense, I would prefer to come in as a court's witness. I would prefer to submit my report to the court. I would prefer to have the Isaac Ray Center facilities available to me to have other opinions as well as my own. I would prefer to have the Isaac Ray Center with the availability of Dr. Rogers to give the SADS test. I prefer to have the Isaac Ray Center because they have Benny Price and other social workers that can go out and interview people if explanations are required. 
They weren't interested in that. And because they wouldn't accept the doctor's terms, those being appointed by the court, reporting to the court, using the team approach, they didn't use them. Now, they try to imply to you that because when he is asked to come in with an examination later in the area, in the same case, when all these requirements that he wanted are met, that he is brought in by the Isaac Ray Center. Again, Mr. Egan, Mr. Sullivan, Mr. Varga and I were never talked to by Dr. Fawcett. We didn't pick Dr. Fawcett out of the who's who in psychiatry or whatever and call him up and say, can we get you into this case? Dr. Kavanaugh asked him to join the, the team in assisting and evaluating the defendant. That is how he gets into the case. He wasn't picked by us. The man is an independent forensic professional. The 10 times he has testified in recent years in serious felony cases, eight out of those 10 times he testified for the defense. I'll tell you how I look at Jan Fawcett. I think Jan Fawcett of Chicago is the answer to Leonard Hess. He speaks English. He can give you responses and explanations for what he says. He can take a long psychiatric term and tell you what it means so that you can understand it. This man has studied violence up close. He has written books on it. He has spent two years interviewing people in the county jail for one of his research projects. Helen Morrison may call herself an expert on mass murder or violence, but Jan Fawcett is one. And by the way, all those people gave you their opinions and were prepared to back it up and did back it up. They said there is no mental disease. They said there's no causality between any supposed mental disease and any failure to appreciate or inability to conform. Every one of them. They didn't tell you. I have some grand diagnostic or psychoanalytical theory Oh, gee, I'm sorry. I can't tell you whether that relates to this case or I have this grand theory and now here's my conclusion. Couldn't conform, couldn't control. Why, doctor? What are the facts? Don't have any. That is the way they testified. They backed up their opinion. They tell you why. You see, there is a difference between an expert that is trying to draw out solely by theory from something that happened a year or more in this case, even seven years before, and without having any facts, any observable signs at that time, at the time of the crime, not only tells you because of our grand theory, I see mental illness there, and then goes a step further 
and infers on inference. But not only that, he couldn't appreciate and he couldn't control. Now the defendant tells you that there is this tremendous snowball, this tremendous acceleration of work, of killing as time goes on. The facts just don't support it. Even if you take 14 and 15 and assume they were buried in, the, in 1978 to assist the defense in their theory, to add to the 1978 bodies. That leaves you with seven killings in 11 months of 1978. There are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten in 1977, the year before. Does that sound like acceleration? There were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, and possibly more in 1976. Does that sound like acceleration? Sounds pretty uniform to us. Why does the defendant deny stuffing things in the throats? Again, I believe rather than being some important inconsistency in his statement, it in effect tells you the fact that the cause of death and the killings were done by strangulation because that's the question the police officers were asking him about. How did you kill them? Didn't they all die the same way? What did you do to kill them? These are the questions that he answered by saying, I did them all with the rope trick. They didn't ask him, what means did you use to keep the fluid from getting on your carpet? He didn't say the rope trick to that. The content of the statements that's what's important. Again, whether the claws or the rope or his hands actually caused the death has no effect whatsoever on your verdict. He talked about the deliberation, the work necessary to body number 29 under that dining room. Think about the hiding of Peace Jacket. Even at the time when the police were closing in on him, when he is beginning to show some signs of being nervous about the investigation, from time to time, when he is losing his temper with them, when he is talking to Ron Rohde about it, even at that time, think what he did with Peace Jacket. You have seen the pictures of the four joists and the hole in the wall and the way that it was buried, hidden down in beside the washer in the laundry room. Look at these pictures again when you are deliberating. See if somebody is in a fit, some kind of epileptic fit some kind of brief psychotic episode that goes through that kind of a person while he is deliberately hiding the evidence. And maybe most important of all, the rope trick itself. Mr. Sullivan mentioned to you this was a con. He got these kids into the cuffs with talk, with a con. He got the rope around their necks the same way. You saw this rope before, taken from body number eight. You saw the pattern of knots, the loop to insert the stick through, the last knot. Do you realize what it takes to do that? Watch the time. I'm using both hands. I'm using the same kind of nylon clothesline, two knots, and then a loop. 
and then another completed knot. Now put a stick in it. All of this is going on with the young man standing there, sitting there, lying there, with his hands cuffed behind his back, indicating. Could you do that if he was struggling? Could you do that if you hadn't conned him, hadn't talked him into saying, let me show you a trick with a rope, and then twist it? Are those the acts of a man that is having some kind of seizure or fit? Talked about in 1963 when he is thrashing around in the hospital bed? Are those the acts of a person having a brief psychotic episode? That is unbelievable. It is murder. It is what John Gacy did to 33, 32 of those 33 cases. And the other one he did with a knife. Consul wants to know why we didn't ask all the surviving victims that got on the stand the ultimate question about sanity. A simple reason and a legal reason. You don't ask someone who has only observed someone at one time in their life for one night what their opinion about their sanity is. Now, Dr. Elysio is willing to give you an opinion on that kind of facts, but that's not the point. We ask them how he appeared to them. We ask them, did he look normal? We ask them, did his voice change? Did he change facial expressions? Did he say or use another name? Did he black out? Did he spin around? Did he thrash? Those are the kinds of questions that were asked of these people. And they are equipped to answer those questions. Robert Donnelly was ripped off the street at gunpoint by this guy. He had never seen him before in his life. How can Donnelly say what is sane or insane for John Gacy? Rignall tells you that he thinks he is insane because of the beastly and animal way that he attacked him. Well, what do you think a guy looks like that is committing sexual sadism on somebody? Is he supposed to look normal? I mean, what is normal with reference to that? And don't be misled by the psychosexual sadism thing. How does that relate to his ability to conform or to control? That's a behavior pattern. It's a sexual preference. It's a sexual deviance. It's whatever you want to call it, but it doesn't have anything to do with appreciating the criminality of your conduct or controlling your conduct or controlling it to the requirements of the law. It's a personality disorder. It's part of his character. There is no causal connection. Finally, the defendant, through his attorney, Mr. Amirati, reads you some passages from a book, a novel, fiction about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You heard that mentioned a lot from people in the family, his sisters, his mother. His dad was a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. I think most of you probably either read the book or seen one of the movies made from the book. Dr. Jekyll was a kindly physician He was investigating the nature of good and evil that exists in all of us. And since he was such a good and kindly man, he felt he couldn't examine the evil within his own soul without some help or assistance. So as a doctor and a chemist, he devised a potion that he could take. And when he took this potion, he turned into the evil, the powerful, the ugly Mr. Hyde. He murdered, he committed brutal acts. He had no remorse. He had no conscience. 
He studied evil from inside himself, and he would come out of the spell, and the drug would wear off, and he would remember. He would remember the evil, and he was able to study it. And he took the drug again, voluntarily, again, to become the evil Mr. Hyde. And he did it again, and he did it again. He did it voluntarily. He knew what was going to happen when he took it, and he went on doing it, and he grew to like it. He grew to enjoy the power. He grew to appreciate and get pleasure from the power, not only of extracting human life and discarding the corpse, but the power of decision, the power of playing God, the power of deciding who will live and who will die. Hey, y'all, Bob here. So I just want to let you guys know why I love Nom Nom, the sponsor of the show. That's because our dog, Nanook, who's been an intricate part of our family for the last four years, is the pickiest eater out of any dog on the planet. We would give him the best of the best in terms of dry food, and the guy just was not having it. That all changed when the first box of Nom Nom came to our house. I cut open the package. I like to treat him a little bit, so I heat it up just a little bit, put it in a bowl, gone instantly. Every single time, the dude loves Nom Nom. I can tell by the way he just devours it because I've never seen him eat like that before. And the reason that he loves it is because that Nom Nom's made with real wholesome ingredients that you can see when you pour it into the bowl. It's like you can actually see the meat. You can see the vegetables. It's unbelievable. And they personalize it to your dog's needs. So it brings out their very best. I mean, this guy has boundless energy these days. I bring him out on his walks and he's doing all the things that he loves to do. He's running and jumping and playing, tails going a million miles an hour. It's an amazing product and it really has changed our dog's life. And our dog is such a huge, huge part of our life. It makes me feel good about what we've been able to do for him. So I cannot recommend more. If you have a dog in your life, treat them. Treat them like the king or the queen that they are in your family and go right now for 50% off for your no-risk two-week trial at nom.com slash dd. That is n-o-m.com slash dd for 50% off with a guarantee return if your dog doesn't love it. And I can guarantee you, you're not going to be returning anything. Again, that is nom.com slash dd for 50% off. You can thank me later. John Gacy has always sought power. He sought the ultimate power, the power over life and death. And I submit to you, through his own quest for pleasure, possibly for orgasm, possibly for his own feelings, whatever, he got just as much pleasure out of rationally deciding to let Robert Donnelly, who he had tortured viciously, sexually, degradingly, to let him live as he did in killing others. That's what is important in this case. John Gacy made choices. He made choices. He became a confident and skillful torturer and killer. He could torture victims to within seconds of their death and still maintain that godlike power to let them live. There is only one John Gacy, and that's the John Gacy the evidence shows. 
At the beginning of my remarks, as some of the attorneys have said before, we are not asking you to show sympathy. You cannot, no matter what you do, you cannot bring back these lives. At that point, I remained silent while I walked over to a four by eight sheet of plywood on an easel with prepared nameplates under the photographs of the then 22 known victims. They're called life and death photographs, photographs that were identified by the witnesses in the trail of peers, family members, acquaintances, friends, that could identify the living victim and later seeing them dead or not seeing them again. Without further comment, I took each one in order out of the three-sided frame on that board. I ripped them out forcibly, but slowly, sometimes with a bit of a tear, sometimes with a loud snap, but taking easily 15 to 20 seconds or more with each individual photo of the 22. When I had collected all 22 photos off that exhibit, I held them in my hand and walked over to the crawl space opening. Bob Egan, uh, in his uh, infinite wisdom, while in charge of the house, and that was uh, a specific duty of his. Whenever evidence was being recovered at the house, he was there, he was in charge. And he was perpetuating and preserving and making exhibits to perpetuate the chain of custody and identity of each item of human remains, clothing, jewelry, whatever that was gonna be removed from that house, and in particular, the crawl space. And he directed the workers on the scene to use a chainsaw and other saws to cut out the floor joists themselves in an area around the crawl space opening that Gacy had used to go into the crawl space, to lower the victims into the crawl space, and to bury them there. And that exhibit was placed on a stand in the courtroom. The stand was built by the uh, technicians the courthouse that maintained the property and it stood above the tile and concrete floor of the courtroom the same height that the crawl space opening had stood above the bare dirt in Gacy's crawl space at 8213 Somerdale. I had placed that exhibit immediately up against the center of the jury box and when I had collected all of the photos I walked over to the defense table Using the photographs in my right hand, I pointed at the defendant, John Gacy, and said, at the beginning of my remarks, as some of the other attorneys have said before, we are not asking you to show sympathy. You cannot. No matter what you do, you can't bring back these lives. I walked over to the crawl space opening with the photographs after again some silence, and I said again, don't show sympathy, don't show sympathy, show justice, show justice, show the same sympathy and pity that this man, pointing to Gacy, showed when he took these lives and put them there. And at that point, I was standing right in front of the jury box next to the crawl space opening, and I threw the 22 photos into the opening in the crawl space they bounced and cascaded off the front of the jury box onto the concrete and tile floor, tile-covered floor, and spread over that whole area of the well of the court. It was a pin-drop moment. There was an audible exhale, 
in the courtroom, and then silence. I did not move and I did not speak for a full minute and a half. And I then walked to the end of the jury box and I said the conclusion of my argument. Mr. Egan told you at the close of his opening statement that if there walks on this earth a man as evil as John Wayne Gacy, then God help us all. Well, you don't have the power to change the past. The villains and the fiends have walked this earth before him, and there is doubt, no doubt that there will be some that will walk after. You can. You can control the future for this fellow. You can affect the present. You can do justice for all the people of the state of Illinois. You are their conscience. Now you are the people of Illinois, and you must fulfill the oath that you gave as jurors. You must not allow John Gacy to use you. If you allow this evil man to walk this earth, this man, then indeed, God help us all. Did you ever have the feeling that God wouldn't care if these people were dead because they were prostitutes or or having sex for money? No, but you want to know something? I, I, I can't recall now when you're talking about religion. I can't recall more than once that I wanted to pray for After they were dead? No, when I found them in the morning. That you know, prayed for me. But pray for them for being so such a lost soul. Don't be so stupid. You, know? you feel that their deaths were their fault? Yes. There is not one of them that didn't didn't die that I'm aware of that didn't die through their own hands or through their own wrongdoing. Uh, if you want to say that I I, I tempted them, I put them in temptation. Yes. Because understand this, everybody that came to my house, there was never a struggle, and nobody was ever forced into my house. Honestly, you know, with my neighbors watching my house like a goddamn hawk anyway, they would have seen me struggling with somebody pulling them into the house or something like that. Everybody came to my house willingly, understandingly, and knowingly what was going on. Well, so the trial is over, and the weight of the world now shifts from the lawyers and the judge over to 12 citizens from Rockford, Illinois. The creep's fate is entirely in their hands. Now, what happens after closing arguments in every jury trial is that the judge reads to the jury the jury instructions. They're often lengthy, as some are definitions and some are statutes, which the jury must find that the state has proven every word beyond a reasonable doubt. Now, there is no black-letter definition of exactly what that means, but it's most often described as that there is no other logical explanation that can be derived from the facts other than the defendant has committed the crime. For our purposes, there is only one instruction, which I will read to you, because it's the instruction that matters above all. That, of course, is the instruction for insanity 
which reads as follows. A person is not criminally responsible for conduct if, at the time of such conduct, as a result of mental disease or defect, he lacks substantial capacity either to appreciate the criminality of his conduct or to conform his conduct to the requirements of the law. The terms mental disease or mental defect do not include an abnormality manifested only by repeated criminal or otherwise antisocial conduct. That's the statute. That's the instruction. So this is what the jury must decide. Keep in mind, it's an either-or proposition, meaning that even if they found that Gacy knew what he was doing was criminal, which clearly he did, if he could not conform his conduct because of his mental disease or defect, they must find him not guilty by reason of insanity. With that, the jury is given a copy of the instructions and they are led out of the courtroom and led to the jury room where the deliberations will take place. I often have the conversation with other lawyers about whether a quick verdict favors the state or the defense, and the best answer that I can come up with is that it depends. I know, that's not an answer. So the jury goes back and they first select a four-person And then they typically take a straw poll, an initial tally of who stands where as far as guilt or innocence. While the jury is doing this, all the lawyers in the Gacy case, the state and the defense, went to grab a bite at a local spot by the courthouse. No sooner than all the attorneys sat down to order their meals did the clerk from Garippo's court call the bar to let them know that they had to get back because the jury had reached a verdict. The jury in the trial of the century took only one hour and 50 minutes to reach a verdict. So in this situation, the jury reaching a verdict in less than two hours where there are 33 murder counts alone and you had weeks of experts testifying about Gacy's mental state, well, the defense knows they are done. As I described above, the process of selecting a four-person and taking the initial poll probably takes 20 to 30 minutes. Then, in the Gacy case, the four-person would have to fill out the not guilty or guilty form for each and every charge against Gacy, which included the 33 counts of murder. Filling out those forms alone, the verdict forms, and having every juror sign it probably took an hour plus. The amount of time tells you one thing. The jury didn't deliberate anything. So the attorneys settle into their chairs and await for the jury to be brought in. Now, I cannot explain just how nerve-wracking these moments are, not just for the defendant, but for all the attorneys. Minds and hearts are racing, palms are sweating, and then the jury comes in. And all the lawyers in the room are trying to read their body language for some type of hint. Did a juror make eye contact with one of the lawyers? Did they look at the defendant? All of those thoughts are running through an attorney's mind when the jury walks back in with a verdict. Garippo takes a seat. He asks the bailiff to get the verdict forms from the foreperson. He briefly reviews them all and then begins reading them to the defendant, the lawyers, and most importantly, to the victim's families. We, the jury, unanimously conclude that the defendant, John Wayne Gacy, attained the age of 18 years at the time of the murders and has been convicted of intentionally murdering the following individuals. Matthew Bowman, Robert Gilroy, John Mowry, 
Russell L. Nelson, Robert Winch, Tommy Bowling, David Paul Talsma, William Kindred, Timothy O'Rourke, Frank Landigan, James Mazzara, and Robert Peast, and that these murders occurred after June 21st, 1977. Garippo informs the courtroom that, in fact, Gacy has been found guilty on all 33 counts of murder. Despite his warnings to everyone in the courtroom about remaining calm and maintaining their composure, after reading the verdicts, the gallery explodes into a cacophony of sound containing every emotion that a human being is capable of. The sounds of the weeping parents of the fallen boys would play in the minds of those in attendance for years to come. Garippo informs everyone that they must return tomorrow for the death hearing, where the jury will decide if Gacy shall live or die. I won't go as far as to say that the roar of approval heard throughout the city of Chicago on that day was heard around the world, but it was damn close. Garippo adjourns for the day. One set of the attorneys, along with the cops that brought Gacy to justice, will spend this evening celebrating a job well done. The other set will spend the evening wondering what else they could have done or said to sway the jury. In this case, it was a futile task, but it is the nature of a defense attorney. What if? On March 13th, a death hearing was conducted, the jury still being impaneled as they decide what the creep's fate will be. The state puts on aggravating factors and the defense attempts to put on mitigating factors in order to convince the jury to let the monster live. These are followed by closing remarks. Gacy's ultimate sentence appeared to the defense to be nothing more than a foregone conclusion. As the defense put on zero evidence in mitigation, and Amaranti gave a very brief closing plea to the jury to spare his client's life. The sum total of the hearing was most likely less than an hour. The jury came back within two hours and 15 minutes. They actually took more time deciding this with no additional evidence than they took to decide the verdict itself. And their decision was a surprise to no one. So on March 13th, 1980, at 6.30 p.m., Judge Louis Garippo informs John Wayne Gacy that his sentence is death. The creep didn't bat an eye. Garippo turned to the jury one last time and told them, quote, I don't know what this trial cost, but whatever the cost, it was a small price. My voice is cracking because I really feel it's a small price we pay for our freedom. What we do for the John Gacy's of this world we will do for everyone. Garippo releases the jury and sets Gacy's execution date for June 2nd, 1980. Now that execution is automatically stayed as all death penalty cases in Illinois must be appealed to the Illinois Supreme Court. So the trial of the century turned out not to be that, but instead was nothing more than a perfunctory ballet that was commenced because it was required to be under the law. No jury would have ever found him not guilty. They could have chosen a hundred different juries, and it would have been the same result over and over and over. Because it has been said that John Wayne Gacy was the poster boy for the death penalty. It was fate accompli for the creep. He wasn't weaseling his way out of this one. 
Gacy is transferred to death row at Menard Correctional Center, and his appellate process would last 14 years. And the briefs that contain the issues up on appeal are fascinating. But now is not the time. That is for a different day. But I must say that we are fortunate that the truth about that little photo receipt from Nissan Pharmacy was never discovered by any of the appellate attorneys, or this tale would have a very different, very unsatisfying ending. On June 6th of 1984, the Illinois Supreme Court upheld the creep's conviction and sentence of death in a 72-page opinion as the High Court rejected each and every one of the 39 issues that Gacy's appellate lawyers had raised on appeal. The court set Gacy's execution for November 14th of 1984. Yet, he would not die on this day either, as Gacy then appealed the Illinois Supreme Court decision up to the U.S. Supreme Court. In a 6-2 decision, the court refused to review the Illinois court's decision. Only Justices Thoroughgood Marshall and William Brennan voted to review the matter. It took another 10 years for Gacy and his appellate lawyers to exhaust each and every appellate avenue, with the final appeal being struck down by the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals just hours before the creep was scheduled to be put down on May 10th of 1994. Illinois had adopted the use of lethal injection in 1983, which put the electric chair to rest for good. On this day, Gacy was transported from downstate Illinois Menard Correctional and brought to the execution building at Statesville by helicopter. The creep was scheduled to die at 11.59 on the 10th of May. And one would have thought that the viewing room of the execution chamber would have been filled with the victim's family members. But such was not the case. It was a small room, and the prospect of allowing some in and not others seemed like an awful idea. So the families were placed in a small room with a grainy closed-circuit TV that would display the execution of the Thief of Lives. Needless to say, collectively, they were not happy. AC had ordered KFC and fried shrimp for his last meal, and I'm just not sure you'd savor that particular meal on that particular day. But as midnight neared, Gacy was brought in and strapped to the gurney. The IVs were placed into his waiting veins. He was asked if he had any last words, and it was this that he said. I've had many years to reflect on what I've done, the pain that I've caused so many. I wish that I could provide each and every one of the victim's families with some type of relief by providing an answer of why I have done what I have done, but I cannot because I myself do not know. I can only say this, I am sorry. To the core of my being, I am sorry. I know this provides you no solace, but I feel it's important that you know that I am filled with deep regret and that I truly hope that when I take my last breath on this night, that you are given some meaningful form of relief from my actions. Goodbye, and God bless. Those words flowing out of Gacy's mouth surprised no one in attendance because he never said them. He's the creep. And the creep didn't care about the 33 young men that he killed, and he didn't care about their loved ones. What he actually said was that taking my life will not compensate for the loss of others, 
taking my life is a mistake, and you are no better than I am because you're murdering me. There's the guy we all know and despise. There's some debate about whether or not the final words he uttered to the onlookers kiss my ass. I like to think that they were, because it's fitting coming from a steaming pile of shit like Gacy. At 12.40 a.m. on May 11th, 1994, which coincidentally is my father's birthday, officials started the toxic chemical mix that would flow into Gacy's bloodstream and terminate his life on this planet. There was a bit of a hiccup as one of the delivery tubes became clogged. Officials quickly fixed the issue and the toxic potion flowed freely once again. And at 12.58 a.m., the creep, the thief of lives, the killer clown or whatever you choose to call him, drew his last putrid breath and his time on this mortal coil finally was done. Bill Kunkel was quoted as saying, he got a much easier death than any of his victims. And I concur. But that is far too diplomatic. I prefer this. No, John. Kiss our asses. All of us at the Defense Diaries family thank you for taking your valuable time to listen to our tale. We hope that our paramount concern for the victims in this case is shown through. This is a case that has been a part of my life for a long, long time. And taking you through this journey has been a cathartic endeavor for me personally. It's a case that changed the way Americans live. Gacy was a real life boogeyman that will forever be woven into the fabric of American culture. And we're not done with the creep forever. But that, too, is for a different day. In the meantime, keep your ears and your eyes open as season two is forthcoming in a matter of weeks. We promise you that it will be every bit as enthralling as this ride has been. Finally, I'd like to thank my partner, my brother, my producer, Darren Wood. I am eternally grateful that you are in my life and my partner on this adventure. I simply can't imagine having done this with anyone else. To Taras and Gak, thank you for the amazing soundtrack you provided us with throughout this entire season. Can't wait to hear what you put together for season two. And to Alex Carver, our art designer, thank you for all that you've done. And finally, to my wife, Allie, for all of it. All of it. And to my daughter, Cameron, for crushing Kim Byers on two separate occasions. And finally, to you, all of our beautiful patrons and listeners. Thank you to the moon and back. And remember to spread the word, because without you, I'd just be an old man talking about an old case. Talk to you next season. Thanks, D. Thanks, D. Hello, everyone. This is Darren. Just want to take a few seconds to say thanks for all the love of Sean, Bob, and I, aka Defense Diaries, throughout the first season. We're pretty excited about season two. I also wanted to say uh, thanks to Mr. Bob Mata. Thanks for everything, homie. We'll be back in a few weeks. See y'all then.